is the Electile Dysfunction Podcast with Ashton Cohen. Way more interesting than anything you're listening to on NPR. Probably less exciting than what you're watching on OnlyFans. Bruh. We're going to talk about the issues that really matter. Our country, our economy, the Fed, QE, GDP, BTC, NFTs, AOC, the CCP, Cardi B, Ow. Yeezy, Yellow Socks, Iran, Joe Biden's dementia, Come on, man. and probably sex robots. We stand for a free and open debate and exchange of ideas. And if you disagree with anything we talk about, you are a racist and no better than Hitler. What? Let's get started. Welcome back to the Electile Dysfunction Podcast with Ashton Cohen. I'm Ashton Cohen. I'm joined today by Peter Young. Peter is the Managing Director of the Free Cities Foundation, which is a group that pushes for these sort of independent, self-governed city-states, kind of from what I understand a little bit like a autonomous zones, mini Singapore's, that kind of thing. And, and uh, Peter's also a frequent uh, commentator on topics of Bitcoin and Austrian economics and has gone to some pretty interesting places, including North Korea several times. So we'll, uh, we'll, we'll have to get his opinion on that. Peter, thanks so much for being with me. It's a real pleasure. Thanks for inviting me on, Ashton. It's great to be chatting today. I appreciate it, man. So I, I have to ask you about the North Korea stuff first, because I've, I haven't spoken to anybody i have one friend who went there for like a couple days on one of those trips but you've been there nine times tell us your experience going there what surprised you about the place maybe some things are overstated about it some things are understated about it well north korea is one of the most closed countries in the world or the most closed country in the world and for that reason a lot of people have certain assumptions about it that tend to be informed by what you hear in the news. Now, certain stories about North Korea will be pretty important in terms of geopolitics because of North Korea being a nuclear-armed nation and the threat that that poses. So a lot of the coverage of the country relates to this particular nuclear threat and the military threat that the country poses to the region and to the world. And so for that reason, you'd get a lot of coverage, which gives you the impression of quite a severe, uh, dark place. And like many places, there is, there is truth to that. That's part of the story of what North Korea is. But when you get off the plane for the first time or get off the train for the first time, because there are two ways that you, you can get into North Korea. You can fly into Pyongyang or you can come in overland from China via, via a train. When you arrive for the first time, often people are surprised by it feeling a little bit more uh, friendly, open, human than they expected. You'll typically be greeted at the airport and there will be a, a guide who's very professional. And because of the restrictions in, in North Korea, you can't be without a guide as you go around. Uh, right. It's, you, you kind of get shown around by the guides, but it's, it's in a kind of way more like being on a school trip with some other <laughs> students, that it is something that's more severe and intimidating. So what I'd say is that, yeah, it's certainly got this dark side to it, but there's also a very human side and there are some wonderful people living in North Korea and it's been a privilege to get to know them through, through the travel that I've been fortunate to, to do. Were you able to go to just Pyongyang or did they let you see the other cities? Because I know from, well, I don't know, I mean, from the reports, uh, you know, it's like a real sort of hellscape in some of these other cities and, and sort of the elites live in Pyongyang and the other parts are maybe, you know, some subsistence farming where people are 
you know, oftentimes Hungary and et cetera. Were you able to go outside the city? You can, people that visit North Korea can go uh, mm -hmm. outside of Pyongyang. Uh, they, but it really depends on, on, actually a lot of it comes down to logistics and costs and wanting to see the highlights rather than restrictions. So if you're on a lot larger budget, you can go to additional places outside of Pyongyang. But most people, they're on a reasonably short timeline And so it makes right. sense to see a lot of the things that there are to see in Pyongyang. But once you get outside the capital, really what the, the authorities in North Korea want to do is show you a positive side of mm -hmm. the country. And you can view that in two ways. You can say, oh, that's dishonest because that's not showing us the real country. Or you can view it in the same way as, say, I invited you to my house, you know, I'm, I might not invite you to go and have a look at the storage room, which I haven't cleaned in five years because it's nice and dirty. It's in the basement, dirty. right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I might present a nice meal yeah. for you in my living room to show you that this is, this is, you know, the environment and I'm treating you nicely as a guest, showing you the nice part of the mm -hmm. house. So you can view it in one of those two ways. And basically, there are certain places which can, you can visit if you uh, go through the, the normal channels in DPRK. But as you mentioned... Once you get outside of Pyongyang, there is a noticeable difference in quality of, of life standard of living, access to resources, access to electricity, running water, things like mm -hmm. this. And mm -hmm. you can get out there and see, but it, it's very much, there is a very big contrast between Pyongyang and, and most yeah. other parts of the country. It's the most fascinating country because it's almost, it's unbelievable that it still exists. And, you know, it outlasted... Soviet Union by now over 30 years, uh, outlasted Fidel. Cuba's still kind of communist. Well, they're still communist, but they're not full-blown the way they used to be. So even they reformed a little bit. People in, in you know Cuba have access to internet, a lot of them, right? They go to these uh, open centers. We had a a uh, prominent scholar on Cuba on the show. And it's, I mean, it's just so odd, and especially, you know, Korea of all places, right? I mean, because right next door is one of the most advanced, sophisticated nations on the planet. I think they have a higher average internet speed than the United States, and and then you have this this you know this this hellscape on the other side. One of the interesting things I remember watching a a documentary on National Geographic. I'd like to get your perspectives based on the way you spoke to you know your interactions with people. And it it was this this professor who went to do some sort of like teaching gig at their elite university there, where all the you know elites send their kids. And one of the things that that person alleged was that because the students are so used to be basically being told lies and propaganda, they are not accustomed to be able to use logic and arguments to defend a, a position. So, for example, if you were to say, you know, German shepherds are the best dogs. Now, you know, write a write an essay about why. And they really couldn't put together sort of like like logical arguments based on you know well, german shepherds are the best dogs because they're smart and they're athletic and this and that did you find that there did you find any, any bit of that sort of mind altering or or just you know, sort of an inability to think the way that you know a lot of people in the west sort of do that's a really good question and from my experience limited to what it is Mm -hmm. from kind of going in there, interacting with people a week at a time and doing that a few, a few times. I would say actually not, not particularly because I think people in the West often, I don't think they're particular exemplars of logic. 
quite often. Right, right. <laughs> um, <laughs> logical thinking is, is at, at our best. Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Not yeah, it's it's going down downhill some some places for sure. Yeah, I mean, I think it's actually quite a rare trait to be able to take an argument, reason through a chain of logic and come to a conclusion or change your mind based on a, a kind of logical process. Um, and what I would say about my impression of the Koreans is uh, they, they, are, they are not people that I, I think, oh, if only they had the education we have, they would be able to think more clearly or present themselves better. Actually, the people themselves, you know, they're living within a system that I would argue is suboptimal from an economic point of view, mm -hmm. but they're still, they're still people and they, in many ways, conduct themselves with a lot of professionalism, dignity, um, skill, and honestly, I don't feel like the way that they reason about things, they'll have certain kind of axioms in the same way that if you talk to someone who is, um, has a certain kind of devout belief yes. about Walkism. Yes. <laughs> perhaps, or whatever you want to be. There are very, many yeah. different, there are, there are kinds of axiomatic belief that come in different guises in the world. Some people mm -hmm. believe things and you can't question their, their basic pillars. And in, to an extent, there's something like that in Korea. Like there's certain things that like people don't question very much, particularly around the, the leadership, or at least they're not public about their question of it. I'm sure they right. do question it. And I'm sure in contexts where they're in very familiar, you know, uh, they have a very familiar context, they will, they will question. Um, but um, honestly, I feel like they do think well. They do think about lots of things. And... and Partly, actually, strangely, certain questions, even of economics, when you're a, when you're a developing nation, you, you sometimes actually are closer to economic reality than people that are from a quote-unquote capitalist nation uh, <laughs> that's developed because you kind of understand, you grasp the core tenets of economics, like there is no way of escaping scarcity resources right. are always scarce there are always trade-offs if you want to do one thing it means you, that it's going to limit your ability to do another thing so you're always trading off and people in developing countries where resources are scarce they kind of understand mm -hmm. so yes. in a way they, they, they have even, to live more in the real world you know in, in these poor countries right absolutely mm -hmm. yeah and so in a way um even when the, the economic worldview you know the central planning is, is sort of at the core but the economic worldview is different but even within that there's certainly an understanding of resource scarcity, of opportunity costs, mm -hmm. and things like this, when you have kind of basic discussions about industry and how the economy is going with, with people. Right. And you've been to Honduras as well? Yeah, that's right. So I don't, I don't imagine many people in Honduras, you know, spend their time thinking about the fact that there, there's like 100 genders or 72 genders, whatever it is, right? They're, they're concerned with <laughs> real issues. So that, I, that makes sense. I mean, the reason I brought it up, and it's also interesting because I've, you know, my mother's from Iran. Uh, she's a refugee right. from there. And that country went from you know, basically being on the verge of, of what Dubai is now becoming a, you know, on its way to becoming a top five economy in the world, westernized, women were educated, minorities had rights, et cetera, to, you know, basically a, a Islamic theocracy taking over the country run by terrorists. And, and it's changed, you know, her going back and she, you know, she sees it and it's actually changed, you know, 
people are so wonderful there. So, you know, some of the most wonderful people you ever meet, but human beings are not in a, in a vacuum. Like when, when societal decay happens around you, you know, it can start to change a lot of people. Once one of the interesting things I always like to see is, you know, how much are, can humans become human or remain human in an inhumane system? And, you know, obviously there's many examples of that throughout history. With respect to, you know, Kim Jong-un taking over and all that. Uh, so I, I saw actually today two teenagers were executed there for uh, apparently watching and distributing, whatever that means, maybe giving it to a couple of buddies, uh, South Korean uh, film. And, but at the same time I have seen, so he's, you know, he's, he's following the footsteps of his, his grandfather and his father. But, you know, I also have heard that there's some sort of economic liberation there. What have you surmised from, from your travels there? There has, there has been some economic liberalization um, in the post um, uh, Kim Jong-il era. And that's manifested itself in the form of like markets becoming more open and more common. It's manifested itself in certain agricultural policies. So one of the things Kim Jong-un did early on was he divided up um, collective farms and allowed more autonomy for farmers within the countryside to keep the grain. Um, he has been a bit more free in terms of allowing economic activity within uh, Pyongyang, Pyongyang and there's been a lot of construction. It's like definitely within the last... So I first visited in 2014, so I'm not a super uh, DPRK veteran, but within even that period, uh, you know, my last visit was 2020, um, there was a marked improvement in how the, the, the place worked. And that has in part come to due to, um, you know, more economic cooperation internationally. Prim I say internationally, primarily China. And then to a smaller extent, Russia, but primarily it's the trade with China. And then internally, a lot of kind of uh, normalization of certain kinds of market activity that were happening to an extent unofficially within the economy, but then kind of being brought to the forefront. Like, for example, there's a, there's a supermarket, a very large department store in Pyongyang that um, called the Kwangbok department store. And that was opened in, I think, 2012. Um, right at the end of the Kim Jong-il era. And this is like an open place where you can come and buy and sell things and like, it's kind of like Ikea furniture, things like this. And this is like mm -hmm. a new development, but now that's a super popular place that people go. So there have, there have definitely been developments in, in, in the sense of some like economic liberalization under Kim Jong-un, but it's, uh, you know, th there remains quite a strict, a very strict uh, policy with regard to uh, information and uh, political dissent right authoritarianism yeah yeah it's interesting how much of the you mentioned that people get to keep more of their the farmers get to keep more of their the fruits of their labor i suppose do you, do you know how much they're able to keep i know in cuba they made it so that they can keep now 10 percent. do you know what it is in, in north korea by any chance i don't have the stats for that off the top of my head but essentially what I believe it used to be, and the guy to look at, if people want to find out more of it, is a guy called Andrei Lankov, who's the guy that I, I learned this information from. He's uh, one of the, the foremost scholars on, on the DPRK. Um, he, he's done some written about this. And the, basically, the system used to be that there were large collective farms and it was all, mm -hmm. you know, services were sent to the state. And you basically received your food in a completely like independent way from your farm uh, through a kind of public the canteen 
And right, right, right. Now it's now it's basically there. There is some that is given to the state, and then but it's a larger proportion that's kept. I don't know exactly what the percentages are, but uh, Lankov, I'm sure, will have a answer on that one if you want to look into yeah, it. No, it. Yeah, no, it's it's uh, it's such a fucking bizarre place. Uh, tell us about so you know you're you're a <laughs> it's fun and it's funny because you've been you know you're somebody who as we'll get into right now is you know you're. Austrian economics guy, you believe in limited government and you know maximizing individual freedom. And so, for you to to go there, it's, it's, you're one of the few people who have that kind of interesting perspective on on having you know read and educate yourself on sort of the exact opposite of what North Korea is and should be, and then having gone there multiple times, it's interesting. Tell us about the the Free Cities Foundation. What is that exactly, and what are you guys trying to do? Yeah, so the Free Cities Foundation is a not for profit organization that is dedicated to giving people more choice in governance. If you look around the world today, all governments raise their money through taxing in a way that the revenues are derived in a variable manner, which requires a huge complex auditing and accounting infrastructure to work out who owes what to whom. Virtually all countries have their own inflationary fiat currency and most countries have some key industries like education, healthcare, provided by the state. And that's one way of doing things. But we believe that people deserve more variety in the core systems that govern their lives. And so what we do is we encourage experiments in governments that do things differently to the conventional political model. And we help to raise awareness of what they're doing to encourage people to, to move to them, invest in them, uh, settle in them, uh, start up a business in them. And uh, you mentioned Austrian economics. I, I'm someone that, that's got very interested in the Austrian school around 2017. And I have been uh, since that period. And I think the Austrian economic framework is, is you know, the only correct way really to understand uh, resource allocation and uh, economic life. So I basically see like what the free cities are doing is like taking models that are respecting Austrian principles and implementing them in reality. So the projects we work with are actually adopting a much more voluntarist uh, framework for governance that doesn't rely on coercion, doesn't rely on uh, you know telling people what they need to do and what they need to pay and what services they're going to provide, but it instead puts puts power in the hands of the people and places an emphasis on free and, and peaceful cooperation. So basically it would be the goal is to have these sort of like autonomous zones within other countries that sort of largely govern themselves and play by their own rules. Is that right? That's, that's a good way of putting it. Although I would say the goal is to have the zones. The fact that they have to be in countries is more a practicality than an actual objective right yeah <laughs> but but uh, yeah I, I think all the country all the land is claimed for at this point right that's correct but all the sea yeah, is yeah. which is an interesting <laughs> which is also an interesting right, okay. angle because we are have a good relationship with the seasteading institute and some seasteading projects where there, there may actually be an opportunity to do something that's entirely autonomous outside of the jurisdiction of traditional states Right. That's something that can happen in the future now with the technology that, that we are basically working on developing, you know, uh, some of the, the UAE has these little projects for them for their own benefit, obviously, where they're, you know, basically creating islands. Saudi Arabia is going to be doing the same thing. So you know, 
right now it's it's only something I suppose the nations could do. Maybe a a few billionaires put their money together can do something like that nature. But eventually, you know, I, I guess that is that is a promising opportunity to be able to create land in the ocean somewhere, maybe twenty miles away. Yeah, cr- yeah, quite possibly creating land is one uh, option. But the option that the seasteaders that we uh, partner with are pursuing is they're mm-hmm. they're constructing uh, sea pods that float on the surface in a similar way using similar technology to oil rigs if people okay, want to okay. learn about how those work there's a great company based in panama that's deployed a couple of these pods already off the coast mm. of the country called ocean builders and they've got you know they're kind of the leaders actually manufacturing these pods and then there's also the seasteading institute with uh, led by joe quirk who was at our conference last october uh, and uh, yeah he, he kind of he sets out a really exciting vision for what seasteads could Interesting. achieve. Yeah. 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 I, I think we're getting a little bit esoteric, so I should probably get a little more context with viewers, but yeah, basically, you know, this has been something that I've heard for, for several years now where, you know, people kind of want to opt out of nation state and they, they've been exploring ways to do it. And so, you know, as we discussed, this is one of the more far reaching ways where, where you're sort of off the land, but some places, some communities have, have, worked out agreements with certain governments to do the same thing. And it, re- it really is, it's, it's a fascinating thing because, you know, we look at the example of Singapore, which went from the poorest country basically in the world to the wealthiest on a per capita basis in one, in, you know, one man's lifetime, you know, the leader's lifetime, uh, Lee Kuan, was Lee Kuan Yew? That's right. And, and then you, you look at Dubai went from, I mean, even, you know, I was born in the 90s. No one ever talked about Dubai. And right now it's one of these it's your shining cities on the hill, one of the most economically prosperous places in the world. Everyone goes there on vacation, you know, all these huge conferences and, and, and festivities are there, right? They even have a, a Louvre in, in the UAE now. But at the same time, you know, other countries still are, are tr- giving the socialism model one more shot, one more shot, one more shot, you know, to, and, and people are just getting poorer and poorer and poorer, and especially places like Latin America. And, and it's like, why... You know, you have a couple of good examples. Yeah, I mean, Singapore didn't even is probably the best example. They didn't have resources. They did not have the the oil wealth, right? They they got blessed with nothing. Uh, Israel can be one of them as well, right? Mm. Became mm. you know one of the most technologically advanced countries in the world, based purely on its its tech superiority and stuff, and has you know one of the few places in its entire region to not have oil. So it's interesting. So, you know, a lot of people, Ibalaji uh, is one of the guys that talks about this, you know, having these sort of opt-out nation states aren't based on coercion. I used to sort of think maybe this is a little bit too crazy and utopian and all that. But if you look at what we've seen in the last several years, particularly as the manifestation of, of the internet, e-commerce, a lot of stuff has grown, is people give a lot of money to Kickstarter, to GoFundMe, to things that don't even materially benefit them in any way. You know, Americans are the most charitable people in the world. People give a lot of money to causes and people that they just care about that don't materially benefit them. So it's like, you don't think that they're going to give money to live in a nice community and have a police force and a, and a you know, fire department and right. Like, so it really goes to show you that it is possible. Has this kind of stuff. So we mentioned there's been some experiments in the past on land. I, I assume from what I've read that I think there's one in Honduras and that didn't work out too well. Can you sort of get into a couple of these projects where they've worked with the national government to have these autonomous zones and what has happened? Well, there's at the moment, the most autonomous zones, the most advanced uh, legal 
distinction for, for special zones within the country is within Honduras. There's a law called the Zones for Employment and Economic Development law that came into effect in 2013, and that allowed for the establishment of uh, three special zones. They're called Prospera, Morazan, and Orcadia. And the one that is, they all have different characters. Uh, the one that I'm most familiar with, uh, well, the two I'm most familiar with are Prospera on the island of Roatan, often the north side of Honduras, um, and Morazan in, inland near to San Pedro Sula. And these two projects are uh, adopting a kind of parallel governance structure, which is attracting businesses and allowing uh, lots of new jobs to be created locally. Um, there, was, uh, there have been political challenges with that because this law was introduced with the previous administration in Honduras. And now the new, uh, there, there has been a new party that was elected uh, late last year and came into power early this year. And uh, they are kind of opposed to these zones and doing what they can to sort of obstruct the, the, the zones. But fortunately for the people that are running the zones and invest in those zones, there were very strong legal protections and international investment treaties um, uh, backed by, you know, strong, strong um, protections that meant that, mm -hmm. that it's very hard to disrupt the actual operating model of those zones. So the zones have faced a few political challenges, but you know I've just yeah. come back from Prospero and it's very much moving ahead, like lots of exciting construction, like all of the bit of rooms filled with people working there from various various businesses, more people employed. So it's, I came away with a very positive impression of what's going on there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, and that, that's kind of right now would be the only sort of downside or fragility is that you, know, you have these strong legal protections and that's great. But, you know, if you have some sort of authoritarian leader, you know, may not mean too much, right? There's like the, the, the old Andrew Jackson quote when the Supreme Court went against him. He said, you know, the Supreme Court made their decision. Now let them enforce it, right? So they can still, you know, you still have a national government at your disposal to to do batshit, as we've seen many times before. So I, I hope it doesn't happen. But, um, just, just to, just to yeah. come back on that. Uh, yeah. The thing is, yeah, like all legal protections have to have enforcement behind them but they they do and and so the way that it works with the international investment protection treaties is hondurans honduran businesses and honduran government they will have assets like you know embassies or uh, their businesses will have foreign uh, uh business premises in other countries mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and the way those right, right. that's a good point yeah there's mm -hmm. a bilateral agreement that says if you take our investment we take yours so the government could say hey we're going to go completely rogue here we're just going to rip up all the international investment treaties. They'd be free to do that and turn into, uh, you know, modern uh, North Korea in a sense, in that they were right. isolating themselves. But that isn't really a viable option because it just means that they'd be cut out of trade agreements, wouldn't be able to export mm -hmm. their goods, import goods, things like this. So there, there is teeth to these to these agreements. It's not just a case of mm -hmm. the government is sovereign and therefore they can do whatever they want. Got it. That's a, that's a very good point. They could sue them in a uh, international court, uh, precisely, or, or a different jurisdiction. Okay. The so one of the interesting interesting bits about that too is that here's what gives me a little bit of pause is the fact that when you have these prosperous economic zones near poor countries, sometimes it's very easy for people to demagogue 
authoritarian leaders, the demagogues say, you know, these these foreigners, you know, they're they're taking our resources, they're screwing it all up. Unfortunately, you know, resentment is a powerful force. It, it's it's a powerful force in politics as well, and, and it's it's really what you know, drives socialism <laughs> more than anything else. It's I mean, it's really remarkable that Singapore was able to, you know, sort of have this because they had this sort of authoritarian impulse, but it was used towards economic development they sort of just kept it together which is really fascinating so that's the only thing that gives me a little bit of worry but then again you know what can they do you can always you know they, they they're vulnerable as well in terms of the assets as you mentioned but that's you know i'm very sympathetic to this idea and i would love to see it take off more i think that a lot of people only think about the government in terms of what it can provide you and the good it can do but the more power you give it to good to do good, the more power you give them to compel you to do anything, right? And to do all sorts of bad things as well. And a, a system in which you know, people, individuals are first and foremost empowered and a government is subservient to them is, is sort of how you know it's supposed to work, at least in the United States. And it'd be wonderful to see other examples of that because it's it's just good competition and it's it's wonderful to see these ideas sort of play out and and lead to promising results. Yeah, that's all. We do obviously want there to be a good relationship between uh, or a mutually beneficial relationship between people that are like you know governing or in charge of territory in some way, and then people that are living within those zones or part of those communities. Our proposal, really, I mean, I mentioned the general goal of our foundation, which is to give people more choice in governance, particularly to move that in a more libertarian direction. But really, like we, you know, we do take a view on what the best kinds of model are from our perspective. And we think that the best model, really, uh, if you want to come up with a a purely voluntarist model, is to have um, something called a free private city, which is an idea that's been um, discussed in the work of Titus Gable, who's our founder. Essentially, what this is, is you don't have a kind of you don't need to have this abstract idea of, oh, the government must serve the people, the government must be endowed with these particular powers. You have a simple business relationship with a service provider rather than a, a, a kind of government. Because really, like, okay. it depends what your, your definition of government is. You could, you could define government as you know, the, the owner and ultimate authority on a piece of land. You could define government as the you know, uh, only... Uh, only entity that has legitimate use of coercive force within a territory. Um, That would be one way of defining it. Um, But basically what we want, what we think would work best is is having owners of land that set a particular, set the rules and that individually the citizens of this area or the residents of this area simply sign a contract with the owners of the land that that means that both sides are are agreeing to those rules and the crucial difference is once that contract is is signed the someone else some other third party can't come along and say hey we're going to force you to change because there's more of us Mm -hmm. than there is of you 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 can't have an election every five years whereby um everyone comes in and says hey like we like the look of your uh, your sofa. Uh, we're going to just have that for us because we haven't got a sofa. Um, yeah. Uh, so it's a nice autonomous zone you got there. It's a shame <laughs> if you lost it. Yeah. Precisely. Precisely. Um, yeah. Yeah. We, we think that actually the most ethical way and most the, the the way of governing society is most conducive to prosperity and well-being and poverty alleviation and all the things that we want 
is to have simple kind of contractual voluntary agreements with people rather than having mm -hmm. a kind of coercive apparatus whereby the rules yep. can just change all the time based on the whims mm -hmm. of uh, political processes and politicians. Right, right, right. And yeah, in, in a straight state. Do you, do you foresee this being a place for families as well or, or retirees? And do you see other places that would seem that seem amenable to this sort of agreement, maybe in Europe or Africa or Asia? How do you think about that? Absolutely. Yeah. So free cities are being made as places for families. If you go to Morazan, they've got 30 small houses. They're, they're made in a modest kind of build up, but they're respectable, um, you know, decent places. Um, and there are several families in there. Many of them are workers in the, in the local factory. So, for example, there's a large medical supplies company operating in Morazan. And often the parents are working there and then they have children there or grandparents in the, in the development. Uh, they've also got international uh, digital nomads that have come over to work in this area. And um, there's, so there's already this kind of mix of demographics. Um, within Prospera, it, I'd say it's de de very much like, you know, it's skewed at the moment towards the, the young professional, just due to the nature of what the project is and which businesses are based there. But um, absolutely, yeah, these are places for the whole family and uh, they, they need to be because that's what makes a, that's what makes a community. Uh, so yeah, we, yeah, absolutely. yeah, we we welcome people of all kinds of background, all kinds of age uh, that that are interested in this to to consider visiting or even settling in one of the projects that we work with. That's interesting. How do you see? Do you draw a connection to this and sort of the decentralized currencies such as Bitcoin? Do you see that playing a role at some point in? Because you know, one of the maybe the most essential components of the state are basically it's you know defining area in which they have a monopoly of of power and violence and the, the national currency. Do you see that Bitcoin sort of opening up the doors to these sorts of things happening? Because now you have a, a you know agreed upon currency that everyone can you know who or everyone could conceivably trust, right? Especially these sorts of people. And what are your views on Bitcoin generally vis-a-vis -vis the rest of crypto? So there's absolutely a strong connection between what's happening with uh, Bitcoin and what's happening with free cities. It, you know, being able to, money, money is a technology that has evolved over time. Uh, it, money solves the problem of how we trade peacefully with each other across time and across space. And over time, we have had different commodities used as money, you know, ranging from shells through to precious metals, through to uh, government currencies. And now we're seeing cryptocurrencies uh, being developed as a kind of contender. Um, but I think it's, it's not a trivial problem to solve. How do you, how do you have a, a, a common medium that can't be manipulated right. uh, by, by any central party? And we arguably had that in the form of gold for a long time. But then, you know, being a physical commodity, I think history shows that gold was subject to capture by centralized authorities. And that's why it stopped okay. being used as a medium of exchange. But I do see what Bitcoin offers as a, as a technological improvement that does stand as a important contender to fiat currency right now. And of course, from our perspective, as people that believe in vol voluntarism, and people that believe in free exchange and that um, two consenting parties should not have to 
go to an uninvolved third party and risk having their transactions censored or risk having their unit of value inflated away. Um, as an organization that believes that that, sh- that, sh- that sh- shouldn't be how it works ethically, we, d- we certainly see um, Bitcoin as being uh, a way that trade within free cities can be facilitated. In fact, some businesses are using Bitcoin already in, in, these, in these zones. Um, but also, importantly, it's, it's a neutral international medium or intercity medium that in the future yeah. these cities can use to trade with each other without having to seek approval from the Federal Reserve or the European Central Bank. Yeah, no, it's not a trivial problem at all. I mean, it, it may be one of the, it is one of the most important pieces of the puzzle, maybe the most important, because, you know, let's say you didn't have Bitcoin and these cities were going to manifest in the future, which I believe they, they have a good shot at doing. Well, you know, maybe that your access to dollars is cut off at one point, right? Maybe it's either intentionally or unintentionally or something happens, right? And, and it's like, so what do you choose then? And, you know, with Bitcoin, it's the only one where you can actually verify, okay, well, I know how much supply there's going to be. I know it's not going to be, as you say, be inflated. People all over the world, millions of them already trust this, already use it, uh, already have it, store it. And, you know, this really solves such a huge problem. And then you add on the fact that it's going to, you know, the, the innovations like the Lightning Network, making it much more seamless and, and ability to, to transact more quickly and frequently and for like pennies. I mean, you can move like, you know, millions of dollars for like a few cents in transaction fees. It's it's just such an incredible innovation for the world that really, you know, because at the end of the day, the biggest hold that a government or can hold can have over you is your livelihoods, your life and your livelihood, right? You know, they can either imprison you or take away all your money. And that's what assures compliance and this thing allows you to escape from that and or you know our modern transportation system allows you to go anywhere in the world so it's it's really it's it's no it's no joke it's a it's a incredible thing that's happened yeah i absolutely would agree with that characterization and it's one of the most exciting technological developments of my lifetime that bitcoin has been created and and grown i didn't really, it wasn't really on my radar until 2017, but it was really understanding Bitcoin and understanding Austrian economics kind of in tandem that just resulted in a complete like shift in my thinking from where it was mm-hmm. to where it is now. So I would, I just, yeah, I would echo what you just said. It's a hugely positive development and it's, it's something that, uh, you know, a, a very large a number of people who are in our sort of supporter base, if you like, people that work with us and that come to our mm-hmm. conference and that, uh, you know, uh, support our projects. There, there a large number of them are, are Bitcoiners. Do you have any view on the on the rest of the crypto space? So, uh, basically, my my, you, I mean, I can answer that from a personal perspective or from a sort of organizational perspective. And I think you know, from an organizational perspective, the the line you know is that people are free to use whatever. They, they would like to use as money. And my, th- there's no de facto right or wrong uh, technology that, that, you know, we can say is 100% going to be the right one to pick. Uh, or, you know, and we also shouldn't be saying that there should be one rather than two. Um, if you ask me from a personal perspective uh, for a judgment on what I think is, is most likely to succeed and what I'm most interested in, um, my personal view is that I think blockchains in general have a single very 
really quite narrow, um, but incredibly consequential use case. And that is the ability to have uh, control of entries in a ledger uh, dictated only by users and by an immutable protocol. And that has a single, very profoundly impactful, but also limited in the sort of sense that, you know, all you can do with a blockchain is secure data within it and control data within it in a, according to an immutable set of rules. But when it comes to you know, putting, oh, I can put my property on the blockchain, I can track where my oranges are from on the blockchain, I can vote on the blockchain, all of these other things, um, to me, I, I, I basically, I don't, see, I don't see a strong use case for them. I've not heard anyone give me a compelling use case for how they would function because fundamentally... They all rely on there being a like link between some real world asset, such as a property and some unit on the blockchain. And as soon as you introduce that, mm-hmm. you're removing the trustlessness of that system and you're requiring either that the data within the system is not accurate or that you're just basically relying on oracles, trusted third parties in order to input the data. Right. And if you're doing that, the entire blockchain is redundant and you've also got this incredibly costly technology baked into your system. So from so from a personal view, <laughs> I haven't seen a use case that other than money that that I find compelling. But I do think that the monetary use case is incredibly important and in, in one of the most exciting developments that I think there's been in my lifetime. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree with that. What gives you? We'll finish off here. What gives you most worry for the future, and what gives you most hope? The thing that gives me most worry is that I don't feel, we live in a complex world and I don't feel like people learn the right lessons from what happens when things go wrong. If you look at most Western countries around the world, we've got very high inflation and because there are so many things happening, People don't look at that and say, you know what, actually, that's probably happened largely because we shut down our entire economy and we printed a load of extra money. And that's probably why mm-hmm. prices are going up. It's blamed on Russia. Yeah. It's well, blamed concept, on all yeah. kinds of other things, which probably play some role. But yeah. people don't seem to be very good mm-hmm. at learning uh, the, the, le- the right lessons which means that I don't think we, we understand how mm-hmm. to change course as quickly as we otherwise would. But what makes me optimistic is that, firstly, economic reality doesn't change, no matter what we think about it. Economic reality is economic reality. And if people do persist on, on denying reality and going down a particular pathway that isn't the right pathway, eventually they're not going to succeed in that. Eventually someone's going to be, someone somewhere else is going to be able to do something better and they're just going to attract the talent, the resources, and they're going to build things, you know, that are are better. Um, That makes me optimistic and that means... Right, but then you just call them fascists. That's that's your way out. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you can shout shout at people, but, uh, you know... uh, That makes me optimistic that there is this kind of natural um, pressure on on uh, on people moving to a more freedom-oriented direction. Mm-hmm. The other thing is that if you just look throughout history, um, over time things get better. 
like despite all of the problems we have in the world, I can't think of another time, give or take five years, <laughs> that I would want to live in. Even though there are lots of things that I think are, that I'm deeply dissatisfied about the world and I, I think is deeply unjust about the world, we, we, we've got a lot better. And we now live, we, despite the challenges, we live in a better world than our parents, regardless of, you know, really whatever, certainly our grandparents, whichever, really whatever country we, we live in, I think that's true. And um, yeah, that gives me that gives me encouragement because I think things are going to get better. We're like, even yeah. though we should be fighting to make them uh, even better than they might otherwise be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we, we have a real opportunity to make some serious changes, particularly these next these next few years, these next couple of decades. You know, as we're in the infancy, we're still basically in the infancy of of this you know, technological revolution, and you know, Bitcoin is you know, younger than. But me, how old would it be? Would it be an adult yet if it were a person? Two thousand nine? No, actually, no, it wouldn't. So we are we are young. We are really recent in, in a lot of these huge trends, and I think there's a lot to be hopeful about as well. Absolutely. So Peter, thanks so much for uh, for being with me. Really enjoyed the conversation. Could you tell people where they can learn more about your uh, foundation and uh, where they can learn more about you? Yeah, sure. So our website is free-cities.org. And you can follow us on Twitter at Free Cities Found. And we have a similar tag on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn. Um, yeah, if you want to follow me, I'm Peter M.I. Young on Twitter. And uh, yeah, if the best way of keeping up to date with all of the things that we do as a foundation is to sign up to our newsletter. So, you know, go to our website and click on the subscribe button and you'll get an update of all the most important developments happening in the world of Free Cities once every three months. So that's the best way of staying up to date with, with uh, key developments. Appreciate it, man. Thanks so much for being on. Thanks, Ashton. Really uh, appreciate the invitation. It was a great conversation. If you enjoyed our show, please click subscribe to stay up to date with our YouTube channel and podcast and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts so that we can keep delivering guys some great content. Thanks for listening and we will be back next week. We're going to talk about the issues that really matter. Our country, our economy, the Fed, QE, GDP, BTC, NFTs, AOC, the CCP, Cardi B, Yeezy, Yellow Sox, Iran, Joe Biden's dementia, and probably sex robots. We stand for a free and open debate and exchange of ideas. And if you disagree with anything we talk about, you are a racist and no better than Hitler. What? Let's get started.